the bottom line, guys, are we going to allow God's truth to shape sexual morality? Or are we going to instead allow sexual desires to determine what is true and moral? Because if you really think about it, since human sexuality was God's idea, do you not think His opinion on how we conduct ourselves sexually matters? I mean, does He care about this at all? Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. This message is, is, is on our YouTube channel. Uh, it's, all you have to do is go to the Center for Executive Leadership, YouTube, and it pops right up. I, I want to just take a minute. Uh, I don't know, I think most of you were here last week. Um, if you weren't, I'm just going to give a quick review and... Uh, And then I'm going to go, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to go straight through the message. And then at the end, um, I will uh, um, open it up for comments or questions. And that includes all of you guys on Zoom. So with that, um, you know, the, the title of this is uh, Homosexuality and Its Impact on the church. And last week we talked about moral authority and the two primary views of the, the subjective and the objective. And we looked at how people over time have sought to add to or take away from God's Word. Um, we looked at what God's Word says about homosexuality. Um, and it's very clear, men with men and women with women is unnatural. It goes against God's design. We also looked at homosexual health issues because if something is unnatural, it can cause harm and it can be unhealthy. Um, we looked at the suicide rate. In the, and we, we primarily focused on the, the homosexual, uh, the male. Um, women's issues are different. and But I think... I think I've chosen to really focus on men because we are men, and I think we probably encounter a lot of men who are uh, who are uh, homosexuals. Even though I'm sure there's there are women we know as well, and that's that's that's, that's good. Uh, we talked about the shortened lifespan um, of homosexuals, and we ended by talking about human desire, and that that's where we'll pick up. Now I want to start with this question. It's a good question. Should certain sexual behavior be declared morally right just because I have a desire to do it? Think about that. I'm going to say it again. Should certain sexual behavior be declared morally right because I have a desire to do it? Now, where am I going with this? The bottom line, guys, are we going to allow God's truth to shape sexual morality? Or are we going to instead allow sexual desires to determine what is true and moral? Because if you really think about it, since human sexuality was God's idea, do you not think His opinion on how we conduct ourselves sexually matters? 
I mean, does he care about this at all? Does he have an opinion? I think what we don't realize is that a society that says premarital sex, or let's say people having open marriages, or sodomy is morally acceptable, if that's the case, we are making a clear philosophical statement about human sexuality. And that philosophical statement says there are really no rules about sex. It's for our pleasure. It's a form of recreation. But if you think about it, it's also a theological statement. And I'm not sure church leaders who embrace gay marriage and homosexual practices realize it's saying that God does not care how I should limit my lust or how I should channel my passions and desires. And there seems to be this thinking, and I'm going to come back to this, that as long as it's a positive experience and as long as it's pleasurable, it's okay in the sight of God. Now, I want to talk about maybe the most controversial part of this issue. Homosexuals and homosexual activists argue that they were born this way. It's an issue of genetics. And the problem is, science tells us there is no gay gene. I said this 10 years ago when I did the series on homosexuality and gay marriage. But 10 years have come and gone. And science again is telling us there is no gay gene. Listen to this. The largest ever study, the largest ever study into the link between sexuality and genetics has found that there is no gay gene that determines a person's sexual orientation. Instead, same-sex attraction appears to be driven by a complex mix of genetics, cultural and environmental influences, just like many other human traits. It's effectively impossible to predict an individual's sexual behavior from their genome. And this comes from Ben Neal from the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and he shared all this with CBS News. This is not from conservative groups. And he says, homosexuality and bisexuality are a normal part of variation in our species. And listen to this. This is amazing. The researchers examined the generic profiles of nearly 480,000 people in the UK and the United States, about 100 times more than any previous study into genetics and same-sex attraction. The scientists identified five specific genetic variants associated with same-sex behavior, including one link to the biological pathway for smell and others connected to the regulation of sex hormones. This is pretty interesting. Overall, genetics accounts for 8 to 25% of same-sex behavior when thousands of tiny variations across the whole genome are taken into account. Sexual orientation, this is important, is influenced by genes, but not determined. It's influenced by genes, but not determined. Now, there is a genetic component to having same-sex attraction, but it's small. As the study says, it can be influenced by genes, but not determined. 
And therefore, 75 to 100% is influenced by cultural and environmental issues. Now, environmental is the environment you grew up in. Cultural has to do with all the things that you've been exposed to in the culture that you grew up in. And since we have limited time, I'm just going to say this. Most counselors who have worked with homosexual men believe the most significant factor is the environmental. The environmental he grew up in. While the most influential factor would be relational, but it's particularly the relationship that a man or young man has with his father. Now, think about the childhood of a young boy growing up into teenage years, maybe starting at four or five up till he's 15, 16, 17. Think of the culmination of an entire childhood of the affirmation they receive, attention, affection, approval, discipline, encouragement, instruction, touch, time, and nurturing. Again, particularly from the father. There was a book um, that I used in my research called Coming Out Straight by psychotherapist and author Richard Cohen who described homosexuality as a man looking for his father's love through another man. Another interesting insight comes from uh, Andrew Kamisky. He's an ex-gay, and he works with people seeking to overcome homosexuality. And he writes, these are his words, in joining with the same sex erotically, the needy child within seeks in adult form the affirmation and emotional intimacy from the same sex that was never properly attained in childhood. Kamisi says that in the majority of his clients, gay sex wasn't really the motivating factor in their homosexual pursuits. While same-sex intimacy was, and therefore reflected more of an, an emotional need instead of an erotic need, he goes on to say, and there can be other environmental factors. And I, I've, I've seen this as I think back growing up, being rejected by male peers while being while growing up, having no, I mean, basically being rejected by all the, the young uh, boys that uh, you want to hang out with. Um, also being molested. This can be a factor. And then Kamisky says, finally, an abnormally close relationship with his mother. Now, I really do think, guys, young boys growing up need a close relationship with their mom. I'm convinced of that. But he's saying an abnormally close relationship. And I'm not sure what that means, but he says that can have an impact as well. Now, one, for, one final thought, and this comes more from a Christian perspective that I'll be honest, guys, I had not thought about. But over 25 years ago, um, I had lunch with a guy by the name of Tom Nelson. And uh, he had been a practicing homosexual. He became a Christian. And he said just because he became a Christian, his desires didn't necessarily go away. But it obviously had an impact. And then he went through a he what he called a healing process. And when I met with him, he was married. He had children. Married to a woman, I might say, he's had, had children. And he worked, he, he basically his work was counseling homosexual men who were seeking to get out of that lifestyle. 
And we had lunch, and I took, I took, I asked him, can I take notes? And I did. And what I'm going to share with you, I'm going to share with you just for a few things he said, but these are his words. The drive and motivation to be attracted to one of the same sex is rooted in emotions and having unmet same-sex love needs. He said there is, a there is a deficit in the relationship with the same sex as the child grows up. But as the boy grows up, he feels different. He realizes he's different from other, other boys. And he feels rejected. And then, and this is what Tom said, and I've never heard anybody else say this. He says, and he says, that's when Satan enters and deals with the person's gender identity. Now we're all, as, particularly as Christians, we're all subject to being attacked by the forces of darkness who want to bring us down. Well, this isn't just for homosexual men, but I hadn't thought about how that might come into play as he seeks to kill, as Jesus says, he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He seeks to deceive. And one of the things that Tom said is he seeks to deceive people about their gender identity. Now, the last thing he told me, these were his words, he says a homosexual couple are two men who desire love and fear rejection. They are looking emotionally for their father's love, which they never really had. And this is why I think it's important that we be understanding and recognize the, the need to love and show compassion to homosexual men that, that might come into our lives somehow. Because there is a loneliness there and a fear of being rejected. Now. This is significant. After all is said and done, there is a final factor. Some might say the biggest factor. And that is making the decision or the choice to pursue a sexual relationship with another man. In other words, actually making the decision, I'm going to have sex. Now, a really good way to look at this and understand it as a basically as a married heterosexual man, and as we think about all that, that influences our choices, I want to read to you about a man who wrote, he, he was heterosexual, and he wrote some interesting words as it relates to our desires and our choices. Listen to what he said. He said, at about the age of 13, I began to notice girls, or I should say it was then I began to notice very little else. 25 years later, the inclination is a bit more refined, a bit more controlled, but only a bit. He says, wherever I am, I notice women, and I notice particular parts of women. I often entertain fleeting thoughts, at times lingering thoughts, of how I might enjoy having sex with this woman I've never met. It is, after all, only natural, isn't it? Or is it? Was I born with an inclination to have sex with several different attractive women? An inclination that merely remained dormant for 13 years? Or did my father, who apparently was a real philanderer, did my father's desire a very similar mind to my dad's, trained me to think about women in a certain way. 
Am I the product of lifelong exposure to advertisements, films, and popular music? Did the trauma of my parents' divorce when I was three or my mother's actions during my infancy created me particular sexual needs and drives? All of these questions, he says, I find interesting. But this is important, he says. But you know, these questions, they're not moral questions. Moral questions have to do with the rightness and wrongness of my actions, regardless of the source or strength of my desires. Whatever I may attribute to my genes or to my parents or to my culture, none of them can force me at the crucial moment to turn a glance into a fantasy and a fantasy into a flirtation and then a flirtation into a sexual act. And he says, this is so significant, guys. He says, at that moment, my will is involved. And precisely such moments define the course of my life as a heterosexual married man. I am the one, ultimately, who decides to be a philandering cheat or be a faithful husband. And he says, and I chose to be the faithful husband. But you see what he's saying here, don't you? He says, genetically, I was wired to be attracted to women. At 13, I realized that, he said, and I had all these different influences on my sexuality. Then my parents divorced. My father maybe was a philanderer. I saw the life he lived, the way he cheated on my mother. And then I think of all the, the movies and TV shows, maybe even the pornography that I watched. He said, but when it got right down to it, I had to ultimately choose the path that I was going to take. Guys, we all know this. Our lives are determined by the choices we make. In fact, your life and my life today is nothing more than the sum of the choices that we've made over the course of a lifetime. And this is where... Christ plays such a crucial role in all this. Remember what Jesus says? If you want to be a Christian, if you want to experience the abundant life that I have for you, look at what he says in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. He says you have to learn how to deny yourself. And what he's talking about is our desires. Deny your, self, deny, deny your desires. Take up your cross. And follow me. And then in the very next verse he says, if you want to save your life, you will give up your life. You'll surrender it. But only when you give up your life will you find your life. Will you find the man that God designed for you to be. Now, a couple of quick other items and then we'll, we'll move to how this has impacted the church. But there was a really interesting book that I used in my research titled The Secular Creed by a woman by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin. And she is a Christian woman who has struggled with same-sex attraction. But she never made that choice to go that route. And she, she got married to apparently a wonderful man. She's been very faithful to him and they have a good marriage. 
And she says this, it's important to distinguish between a person's attractions and their actions. She says, what are, whatever our patterns of attraction, we don't choose our attractions. I didn't choose, for example, to be attracted to women. But we do choose our actions. And we all agree that sexual actions carry moral weight. Like the guy that I just read about. He speaks of his attraction to all kinds of women, but he chooses not to act upon it. Now, this is really interesting. I didn't want to go ahead and insert this because the latest research, this is really up-to-date research, according to McLaughlin, is that our sexual attractions can change over time. And that bisexuality, in other words, where you might uh, be attracted to a man or woman, is far more common than exclusive same-sex sexuality. This is interesting, guys. University of Utah professor Lisa Diamond, who identifies as a lesbian, is a pioneer of this research. Diamond has found that women like me who experience same-sex attraction, but not exclusively, are by far, by far the largest group of sex, same-sex attracted people. So this is all new. This is all new. I mean, I don't think ten years ago we really knew what or thought much of what being bisexual was or transsexual. She says about fourteen percent of women experience attraction to other women, while only one percent are never attracted to men at all. That's interesting. For men, it's roughly seven percent who are attracted to other men, while only two percent are never attracted to women. This means there's a significant complexity within labeled categories. For example, Lisa Diamond says 42% of self-identified lesbians and 31% of self-identified gay men report having had an opposite sex sexual fantasy in the last year. So guys, let me just say this. Hopefully we can see how complicated this is. Think about all the different factors that are out there that influence a person. And then as you think about people's desires, their attractions, and then you have to eventually make a decision, what am I going to choose? Which direction am I going to go as far as my sexuality? And one other major factor, which we talked about last week, is your choices and decisions will be powerfully impacted by the moral authority in your life. As we said, you have this sub subjective approach, which is determined by your heart and your feelings. And the problem we said is that you will, if that's your case, you will be unstable and will have a difficult time acting decisively because the heart can be conflicted. The heart can't be trusted. We, we quoted from Jeremiah 17, 9, where he says the, the human heart is deceitful. And then we said, on the other hand, when you have an objective source for moral authority in your life, like the Bible, you'll have an anchor for your soul. You'll have a rock that you can look to in order to do what is right and what is good and what is moral and what is healthy. 
Now, I want to spend the balance of our time talking about homosexuality and its impact on the church. Tim Keller had this to say. He said, until very, very recently, there had been complete unanimity about homosexuality in the church across all centuries, all cultures, and even across major divisions of the Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant traditions. So homosexuality is categorically different. He says, one has to ask then, why is it the case that literally no church theologian or Christian thinker or movement ever thought that any kind of same-sex relationships was allowable until right now? That's a great question. So what's happened? What's happened to the modern church? Well, if you look at the church in America, if you go back to, say, the 1900s, maybe even the mid-1900s, the Protestant church was dominated by what is called the mainline denominations. You didn't have all these these, uh, non-denominational churches like we have today. You really didn't have what they call the evangelical church today. You had the mainline denominations, and there were seven mainline denominations, three of them. None of us are probably that familiar with, but we are familiar with the Methodists and the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, and the Baptists. And I would bet that everybody listening is probably was probably at one time, since this is kind of an older group, at one time we're a member of one of those. Uh, denominations may still be. Um, And for years, homosexuality was not an issue with any of these denominations. But again, that's all changed. And Keller's explanation is that leaders in our churches now see life through a different cultural lens than they did going back hundreds of years. And so what is this new cultural lens people are looking through? He says the reason that homosexual relationships make so much more sense to people today than in previous times is because they have absorbed late modern Western cultures' narratives about human life. And he says our society presses its members to believe you have to be yourself. Be yourself. Follow your desires. And that sexual desires are crucial to personal identity. And that if anybody seeks to curb a strong sexual desire, it will lead to psychological damage. And so individuals need to be free to live and pursue their desires. Now, we're talking about Christians adopting this view. And to me, and I think it's pretty obvious, if you take this view you are completely throwing out biblical authority to be to say we can go and pursue what our desire, whatever our desires are. And so what Keller says, and I think he's spot on, is that many church leaders have been trying to find evidence for their views in the Bible. They may have to add to or take away. And he says it's not surprising that if church leaders have this new cultural lens in which they are looking through, he says, then they will have a strong disposition to find in the Bible text evidence 
But these new views. Now let me give you a couple examples. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ, you've closed yourself with Christ, and therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And where it says there is neither male nor female, what these modern church leaders are saying, you are all one in Christ. And then therefore sexual relationships with members of the same sex can be a valid expression of Christian love. Because there's neither male nor female according to Paul. But guys, this is amazing that you can twist that verse to say that. Because any credible Bible scholar will tell you Paul is not obliterating these distinctions. He's just saying that when you're in Christ, there's no preferential status between a Jew and a Gentile, between a slave or a free person, or between a man or a woman. There's no superior status. There's no application to sexuality in those words of Paul. Now, this next one is a common argument. And it has to do with the verses that we let, read last week from Leviticus, if you remember. That clearly forbid homosexuality. They say it's abomination. But they point out, you know, Leviticus forbids the eating of shellfish, which is part of the ceremonial law. And you know what? That's right. Shellfish were considered unclean because they, they dragged along the bottom of the, of the ocean. And um, since Christians no longer regard eating shellfish as wrong, then why can't we change our minds on homosexuality? The problem is, guys, if you take that position, you are rejecting the New Testament understanding that the ceremonial laws of Moses around the sacrificial system and the ritual purity, they were fulfilled in Christ and they weren't binding any longer. But the moral law of the Old Testament is still in force. It was never suspended. In fact, this view that I just described has been accepted by all branches of the church since the New Testament times. And then even if you, 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 you thought, well, I think you still can throw out the Leviticus verses, think about all of the New Testament teaching on homosexuality that we looked at last week. What do you do with that? Now finally, the argument that's, that I think most pro-gay pastors and leaders make is that they are led by the Spirit of God but most significantly, they are guided by the love of Jesus. In fact, one book that I read of a retired minister, he said, my interpretation of all Scripture is through Jesus. And he says the most important passages in the Bible, he believes, are Matthew 22, <clears throat> uh, verses 37 to 40, where it said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And the justification becomes, therefore loving your neighbor as yourself overrides the authority of Scripture as it relates to homosexuality. In other words, if you're in a loving relationship with another man, then that should override what Paul says in his letters. Now, the problem here, guys, there are a lot of problems, but love, it's very clear, love needs God's law to guide it. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey all of my commandments. And so what you see with people trying to take God's word and twist it or turn it or change it, we're back to where we were when we read last week in Jeremiah 5. The problem, he says, is the priests and the leaders rule on their own authority. Not God's authority. They rule on their own authority. And then he says, and my people love it so. Now, and that's, what, that's what's happening. Now, around 10 years ago, um, I had lunch and a discussion with Frank Limehouse on this issue. Um, the Episcopal Church had just gone through the decision of uh, uh, ordaining uh, uh, Bishop Robinson, Gene Robinson. And uh, many, of the, uh, many in the Episcopal Church were really upset about it. Frank being one of Paul's all, it was he he he, had, he hung a, a black flag outside of the Advent. But Frank made an interesting comment to me. He said, "Richard, I'm gonna tell you this ain't going away. And I'm gonna tell you why." He says, "The liberal pro-gay people in the church see this as a civil rights issue." Gay activists argue that we are a minority, and they are a minority, just like the blacks in the 60s. But I think the great economist, Dr. Thomas Sowell, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a brilliant man. I see him on the news a lot. He has great insight into this. He's an older African-American. He's 93 years old. So in 1960, he was 30, and he went through all of the civil rights movement. And he says this, he said, gay activists have thrived on the confusion between homosexuals and members of racial or ethnic minorities. But you are a black or white or Chinese or Cuban, regardless of how you behave. Homosexuality, however, is defined by your behavior. It's one thing to say all people have the same rights as the 14th Amendment does, and something very different to say that all behavior has the same rights. There is no reason why the law should make all behavior equally acceptable to all peoples or surround all behavior with equal obligation, with legal obligations on others. And so the question becomes, so, okay, how has homosexuality impacted the church? I think it's pretty clear, guys. It's caused a great division. And what's happened, don't you think about this, what's happened, each side has had to cast allegiance to 
to either the Word of God and its authority or to leaders who rule on their own authority. Now, I want to share with you some words um, from Steve Rowe. I don't know if you were... I, I can't remember which session he was in. Steve, last week, shared something that was very powerful, and I asked him, would you put that in writing to me? I'd like to use it. Uh, Steve is an attorney, a retired attorney. Um, he uh, uh, he goes to St. Mary's, which is a, 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 a really nice little Episcopal church here in Birmingham. And he says, these are his words, our married children and grandchildren live in Washington, D.C., so we have spent a lot of time there in the last few years visiting them, particularly since I've retired. <clears throat> Our apartment is on Capitol Hill. St. Mark's Episcopal Church is nearby. It's an historic church built in the 1800s. We were looking for a church for ourselves and also one we could recommend our children who don't have a regular place to worship. Our first visit to St. Mark's was on Palm Sunday. The priest is a practicing lesbian. They have the, the gay flag hanging in the church. There are no Bibles or prayer books in the pews, as far as I can see. Scripture is not much mentioned, and on this day, the priest said she was most happy about the start of spring training baseball. Little reference was made to Christ's entry into Jerusalem. There weren't many young people at all or young families. The place felt like a Harry Potter movie where the Dementors had sucked the souls out of everyone there. It was a dark place, and we couldn't wait to get out. So I sent email to friends who spent, who spent a lot of time in D.C. and asked them for alternatives. They suggested this Anglican church. Now, let me just say this. An Anglican church and an Episcopal church are kind of like cousins from the standpoint they're, they're liturgical. And they use prayer books. And often they use the same prayer book. And um, he said that, uh, he said, we found an Anglican church also on Capitol Hill that had been suggested to us and we attended it on Easter Sunday. He says, this is a church that was planted about 10 years ago. Originally they met in people's houses as they began. Then they bought a church that had built, been built by free slave, freed slaves in the years following the Civil War. And it was about the same time that St. Mark's was built, though clearly much less grand. But what a difference between the two churches. Church of the Resurrection, which is this Anglican church, is physically very humble, yet it is full of life. Young single people, young married couples, throngs of young children, Bibles in the pews. At the start of the sermon, the priest asked everyone, open your Bibles, and he preached right from the Bible. And he, Steve said, we had our children and grandchildren with us, and we were literally in tears during the service. He said, it moves me to think about it now. Needless to say, this has become our church when we visit D.C. And he closes by saying, Washington is an extremely liberal town. Gay pride flags everywhere, particularly on the churches. The Bible-centered approach of Church of the Resurrection would seem to be a losing strategy in this environment. 
But the opposite is true. It's flourishing. And notice this, guys. Two liturgical churches. One is Bible-less, meaning no Bible. The other is Bible-centric. One is dying. The other is growing and is vibrant. And so again, I'll say it once more time. The homosexual issue has forced churches to decide who and what they will be loyal to. And that's what's caused the division. But I would, I would have to add, I need to add this, because I think it's so important. There is power in the Bible. We're told in the Scripture that the Bible is living and active and it's as sharp as a two-edged sword. So there's power in the Bible and there's power in its gospel message. And when the power is removed, it weakens the church. And then often the church dies. And I think this is happening in many of our mainline denominations. So many of their numbers have dropped well over half in the last 25 years. And what what I read is that in so many of these churches, you have primarily older people. Their kids have gone elsewhere. But I might add, must add that when the power of the Scripture and the power of the Gospel is unleashed, churches will prosper and they will flourish. As God instructed, has instructed us, go and bear fruit and multiply. Now, one of the places where there's a clear... And let me just stop and say this real quick. The good news for here in Birmingham, there are a number of wonderful churches in the mainline denomination that are truly focused on the Bible, on the Scripture. Some of you may go there. And that's good news. Because if, they'll stay that, that, the, if they will stay the course, their churches will grow and flourish. But if they ever... Remove the Bible, remove the gospel message, it'll go and decline. I think that's what history has shown us. But one of the most clear indications this is happening is to look at the state of the mainline church's seminaries. Victor Hansen sent me an article from the Wall Street Journal back in August of 2017 titled, Seminaries Reflect Struggles of the Mainline Churches. And the subtitle was, Storied institutions are shutting their doors as enrollment shrinks. And guys, it's amazing how many seminaries that you read about in the article, some over 150 years old, and they're shutting their doors. There seems to be a lack of calling in the lives of potential students. And yet, interestingly, Albert Moeller, who's president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and this was in the article, said their seminary had hit record highs. And then you look at Beeson here in Birmingham over at Sanford. I was on the uh, advisory board for 10 years. And they have to turn people away. But it's a Bible-centric seminary. In fact, Moeller explains in the article, he says, young people heading to seminary, they're looking for an unquestionably orthodox theological education. Orthodox meaning the established or traditional beliefs found in the Bible. So guys, do you see where this is all going? 
To me, it's incredibly sad, but inevitable. I talked to a guy recently who, uh, he and his wife and some other couples spent a good bit of time traveling in, in, in Europe. And he said, in almost every town we went to, you would see some of the most gorgeous churches that you've ever seen. But what you learn real quickly is they're not churches anymore. They're museums. There are no worship services. People go and look at them because of the beauty of the architecture. Now, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if our older denominations will follow that path. Time will tell. I want to close, guys, with a powerful, true story. Very powerful. And as I read it, I ask you to think about all the issues we've discussed. Human desire. Sexual desire. The significance of choices and decisions. The choices and decisions we make that spring from our desires. And then you have natural and unnatural desires. And you have choices that will lead to our harm and choices that will lead to our well-being. So, listen to this story. It'll bless you. Rosario Butterfield was an English professor at Syracuse University. She described herself as a left-wing radical lesbian. She lived with a lesbian partner. She taught critical thinking at Syracuse, but her specialty was a course called Queer Theory, which was a form of gay and lesbian studies. And she said, my life was going just fine for me and my partner. I was teaching, I worked a lot with lesbian women, and she says life was going fine until I was asked by a gay publication to write an article on the religious right and about promise keepers and why they hated queers like me. That's what she used to write on. And she said the article, after it came out and was published, generated many rejoinders. So many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk. One for the hate mail and one for the fan mail. But she said, then I received one letter that defied my filing system. It was from a, a, a pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a very kind and very inquiring letter from Ken Smith, the pastor who wrote it. And he encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I have to admit I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know what you believe is right? Do you believe in God? Ken did not argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. And I didn't know how to respond to it. So I just threw the letter in the, in the trash. But later that night, I fished it back out and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. Because here I was, a postmodern intellectual, and I operated from a historical, materialistic worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural worldview. And Ken punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. And then with the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. 
And by the way, what I'm going to read to you, I believe, is the way that Jesus would have us respond and reach out to the homosexual community. She said, I've seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell and was, and was clear as blue sky that this is not what Ken did. But it was, this was clear as blue sky. But this is not what Ken did. He didn't mock. He engaged so that when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were very straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research, I thought. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met all of my friends. We do book exchanges. They talked openly about sexuality and politics. And then I think this was maybe a crucial point. I made the decision to start reading the Bible. She says, but I read the way a glutton devours food. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. And then at a dinner party gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My transgendered friend named Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand around mine and said, this Bible reading is changing you, Rosario. With tremors, I whispered to Jay, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and there is a risen Lord? What if, we were all, what if we are all in big trouble? So I continued to read the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. And I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, conspicuous with my butch haircut. So I had to remind myself I came to meet God and not fit in with this group. As time went by, I fought with everything I had. I didn't really want this. I didn't really ask for this. And I began to count the cost, and I didn't like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. And one Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17, if anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, which means, he's saying, <clears throat> you need to uh, obey before you understand. And she didn't want to do that. She wanted to understand before she would follow it. This verse exposed the quicksand in my, which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding had to come before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. But that verse promised understanding after obedience. And so I wrestle with the question that I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view. 
or did I just want to argue with him? I wondered, am I really a lesbian? Or has all this been a case of mistaken identity? And if Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could He make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed, bare, and I surrendered. She says, in this war of worldviews, Ken was there for me, Loy was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there, and Jesus triumphed, yet I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song into the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, He could make right my world. I drank tentatively of that living water. She said, but I drank tentatively at first and then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. She said, then I rested in peace. And then over time in community. And today I live in the shelter of a covenant family and a home where I have a husband who calls me his wife. And I have four children who call me mom. And I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for me and for my life. Now, this is a great story, guys. But I believe it's instructive on how we should properly respond to gay men and women when they enter our lives. That Pastor Ken Smith, I think, demonstrated it. We should befriend them. We should love and care for them as the Smiths did in the story. Because if you remember, this is the way Jesus responded to those he encountered in John 4 and John 8 who were struggling with sexual sin. And if this is, if, if this is his response to them, we should clearly do likewise. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.